The nonprofit journalism of the Connecticut Mirror needs your help now more than ever. What do those words mean exactly, now more than ever? Well, it's like this. Journalism has been under attack over the last several years on both the political and economic fronts. The Mirror, as a nonprofit, nonpartisan team of experienced reporters who are watchdogging state government and other parts of civic life, has operated above that fray. We get support from people of all political persuasions, and we have a wide base of generous supporters. But the cost of doing this work goes up every year, and the need to expand what we're doing, as other outlets downsize, is ever-increasing. We want to grow the Connecticut Mirror newsroom to serve you better, and we want to be able to weather the tough economic times that all small businesses are facing today. The other reason, now more than ever, well, right now, every qualifying gift up to $5,000 is being matched dollar for dollar by Newsmatch, the country's largest grassroots fundraising organization for journalism. But this match ends on December 31st, and that's coming up soon. Go to ctmirror.org today and donate generously so that we can build on our work serving the people of Connecticut. And thank you. Now, here's our show. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky, and happy holidays to you. Miguel Cardona, Connecticut's Education Commissioner, is, as we've been reporting, on a short list of candidates to become Education Secretary in the Biden administration. Politico reported Saturday that the Congressional Hispanic Caucus has given its, quote, enthusiastic endorsement to Cardona in a letter to the president-elect. As the Mirror's Jacqueline Rabe Thomas reported today, if Cardona got the job, he'd be in charge of getting the majority of students back into schools, something Biden has promised in his first 100 days. It's an effort that Cardona was focused on in Connecticut this year with mixed results. The state saw a shutdown of schools in the spring, followed by a reopening that left some students, parents, and teachers confused. Each district devised its own plan to reopen in-person classes or provide virtual or blended learning. I talked to Cardona twice this year for our podcast, and as he's considered for this important national job, we wanted to look back at what he told us about Connecticut schools and what it might signal if he's tapped to go to Washington. In early August, right in the middle of the pandemic, he made the case that COVID showed how important getting back to school is, especially for children in struggling school districts. Even before it started, let's not forget that Connecticut has some of the worst achievement gaps in the country. Um, You know, there's nothing in those data as sad as they make me that surprises me. They're... COVID and the effects of COVID exacerbated the issues, but you saw the gaps that were there before COVID and that we should have a sense of urgency and uh, uh, will to address those. When we talk about disparities, it's not limited to education, health access disparities, um, income disparities, housing disparities. And I remember where I was when I heard that black and brown people are dying at a greater rate. And, you know, that hit me differently because I know that some of the fear and some of the concerns with returning have a lot to do with that as well. I know that um, in many of our urban communities, there are uh, multi-generational families. So it's important to think about gaps, not only with education, but also uh, what people are thinking about with regard to um, their 
susceptibility to COVID and the long-term impacts on their family and the anxiety that that produces. Um, so there's no easy solution here. There's no one, this is the best, you know, we're learning as we go along. But I want to bring up something that um, I think was glaring in the data. We're in a health pandemic, but we're also in an education emergency. We're in a situation now where, you know, when students lose learning, students are losing out on academics, but also that social emotional piece, that community. And we have a responsibility to try to connect that as best we can while promoting those same health. Because at the end of the day, we also know that in some of these same communities, the risk is greater. So I just wanted to bring out the fact that, yes, we're in a health pandemic, but this is also an education emergency that we we have to accelerate our efforts because COVID accelerated disparities. We have to really double down and put our heads together to do what's best for kids and for the community. And that includes making sure that health and safety stay at the top of, of the conversation. Well, if we treat this like an emergency, Commissioner, let's let's talk about as we head into planning for this next school year, what steps you think are most important to take right now? Obviously, we've only had a couple months of learning, so we're not going to know everything about what to do. But if we're going to treat this as an educational emergency, what are a few top things that you think absolutely need to happen in order to make this a more successful school year for kids? Provide in-school opportunities as best you can with health and safety as a primary, but also simultaneously not either or, plan for a robust distance learning, remote learning process that will likely continue for the remainder of education while we're on, you know, while we're here, right? So I don't ever think we're gonna go back to a fully, I think we're gonna continue with a a blended model moving forward. Um, You know, there were some districts that were already experimenting with blended learning where students didn't have to have uh, the seat time in the building. Um, I, I think we need to be look at this as an opportunity to redefine what education looks like and question some of those things that we've said we have to do, such as seat time in the in the buildings. You know, um, so specifically, we need to identify how we can get students into the school as many students as possible safely. Uh, and, and I use the word safely, you know, because that's generally where I go. But we know that there is no way we can reduce risk 100%. You know, it's hard to communicate that um, because it it takes a lot to to let that sink in. But as much as um, there are risks for us to go to get gas or go to the store, you know, there's some risk in everything that we do. We know that there's also risk in not doing things. You know, we've seen students that, that 25% that uh, Jackie talked about that are not connected, you know, they may be outdoors, they may be unsupervised. There are risks there, um, not to mention the academic risks. So wherever possible, bring students in and looking at some of the models that have worked in Connecticut with early childhood, but also in other countries. And secondly, don't take your ga- a foot off the gas pedal, regardless of the data, to make sure that if we go fully remote the second time around, we do it so much better so that we don't have some of the pitfalls we had in the fall. And, and I think we are working in that direction. That's Connecticut Education Commissioner Miguel Cardona from an episode of Steady Habits back in August. 
We are revisiting a few of our conversations with Cardona from this year as he's in the running for the top education job in the Biden administration. Now let's go back to February, which seems like, well, another world. Pre-pandemic, we sat down to talk about Cardona's priorities. He'd only been on the job for less than one full school year. We talked about his biggest challenge, closing the state's massive achievement gap, but also the end result he hopes for, job readiness and the economic boost that it can provide the state. How do we do that? We make sure that all students are achieving at high levels. And then secondly, we make sure that our pre-K-12 programming is responsive to the needs of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking a lot at the agency about college and career pathways. We know that a college-educated workforce has higher income potential, has uh, more ability to, to, to buy a home and to, to settle and have disposable income, which helps the economy. We know that. What we're not doing as aggressively as we should yet is connecting the opportunities that exist in Connecticut today in industry uh, with highly qualified graduates so that our learners, when they graduate, have opportunities to get into the workforce and then continue college if they so choose, but have that opportunity to be uh, instantly employable or instantly recruited into a program that gives them the training to jump into a great uh, you know, career where they go into the middle class instantly with opportunities for growth, right? Yeah. So you know, the, the, the ideal there would be welders who code, right? So welding isn't what it was 20, 30 years ago. You, you, you need a welder that, that understands coding now to program machines that do the welding. So these are the type of jobs that are out there today that I think we need to do a better job connecting to our K-12 system. And, and that work yeah. is underway. So but let me ask you about this because I think it gets to one of the really philosophical questions about what education is for. And I, I always love this conversation. It comes up in, in K-12, through but it comes up a lot in the college level too, which is, that, that when we make education linked to the economy that we have right now and the economic needs that we have right now, the jobs that we have to fill right now, it can help us get people filling those jobs. But it also says that, that education is about getting a job and it's not learning and filling your mind right. and figuring out how to do that thing, maybe that entrepreneurial thing mm -hmm. that no one has ever thought of before. How do you think about that particular balance? Because every time I think about the economic imperative of filling certain jobs that we have, I think, man, there's, there's maybe a great ballet dancer who's going to be a welder. And I feel some part of me dies about that. You know what I'm saying? I totally get it. And, and again, I graduated from a technical high school, so I get that yeah, yeah, yeah. option. I want to graduate with options. That's it is our job to make sure that students have opportunities to do whatever they want. They want to go into theater. They want to go into uh, teaching. They want to go into welding. But I think what we're not talking about is how over the last 10, 15 years, um, a college or bus mentality has resulted in only 25% of our students who are free or reduced lunch graduating college. So 75% either don't go to college or go to college dropout and now are in debt and are living in the basement of uh, someone else's home because they can't get out of debt. That person's not buying a home. That person's not going to have that fulfillment that they want because they're working two to three uh, jobs underemployed to make ends meet. That's what's happening. We're not addressing it. We're not talking about that. You're absolutely right. 
And I'm an example of it. I studied automotive, being an automotive technician for four years. I chose, you know what? No, I don't want to do that. I love working with people. I want to work. I want to be an educator. I wanted to be a fine arts teacher because I had a wonderful high school art teacher that really, I wanted to be a, an art teacher. Um, but I had opportunities because I was prepared. I'm not saying we're creating widgets. And I think, you know, the argument has to be very clear what we're talking about. We're not talking about making widgets. I'm not saying we're going to have a, you know, one of the things I want to guard against is tracking or saying to an eighth grader, you're college bound, you're not. That, that to me perpetuates inequities. Mm-hmm. But right now we have opportunities for students to be fulfilled. You talk about you know, kids who maybe a ballet is forced to be a welder, quite the opposite. We have a lot of students sitting in our high schools today that need hands-on experiences, that want to build things, that want to develop things, that want to manufacture, that want to want to go into IT, go into business. And oftentimes, we have students who um, don't take those opportunities because they're going to be less likely to be looked at by colleges. I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, yeah. just yesterday, I was in a store, and I, knew, I know the store owners. Our daughter was a junior, and this young lady is, I think, Eighth in her class, very bright student, was thinking pharmacy, wants to be a pharmacist. Not sure, though. So she's thinking maybe the medical profession. This student was ranked fifth, is now ranked eighth because she took courses Mm. that prepare her for a CNA uh, credential. Now, you would argue, what a great opportunity for this kid. However, it was it, it's a disincentive because now she's eighth because those courses don't carry the same weight on a college transcript or on a high school transcript. She's willing to say, you know what, I'm going to take a drop in my class ranking and maybe eventually fall out of the top 10 because I want to get this micro-credential that will help me understand what I want to do in life. Our high schools need to evolve to give students opportunities to experience different things, not only within our four walls, John, but go take an internship or an externship uh, get a high school credit by being in a in a place where they're building things to see if that's what you want to do. But but, but the shouldn't real, our high schools prepare yeah. students for that? Well, the, the high schools, yeah. But I mean, it sounds like that that sounds like a foundational problem with with the whole college system too, right? I mean, and, and that's something that's not under your purview necessarily to fix. But if the college system is is disincentivizing people from doing things that are in their best interest and incentivizing other things that probably don't matter as much, well, damn, it's going to be pretty hard to solve that problem. You know what's great? Yeah, that we're talking about it. Yeah. You know, it's great that, that we're saying, how do we collectively, how do we blur lines between our agencies and say, what could we do that's good for kids? That when I talk to superintendents and I hear their perspective and I talk to 17-year-olds who tell me this, that I'm able to help shift some policy in the conversation to say, our high schools should be comprehensive. And students who are interested in, in learning a little bit more about advanced manufacturing should have the same rigorous expectations so that when they leave, they're prepared for either a career in advanced manufacturing or going to college to become a teacher. Just like I was uh, you know, learning how to take engines out of a car and put them back in, yet I was successful in, in my undergrad and my graduate level work. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. We have to open up a little bit more and say, what is the role of high schools? And to your point, we're not creating widgets, but we're also not creating uh, factories to careers that may not even exist now so that when students graduate from college, 150 in debt, they don't look for jobs to try to f- pay their debt and never are able to uh, enjoy the degree and buy a home and, and 
continue with life because you're paying out debt and yeah. a career that you were kind of pushed into. So with, with your job looking over education in the state, I'm wondering how much of your time you spend thinking about the fact that so many of the issues that you have to address or remediate or you, you need to solve problems around have nothing to do with education. How much do you think about that as a part of the problem that you have to solve? And what do you think, what do you think that you can do about that? As a commissioner of education, it's not only my job to make sure that we're doing everything we can within the schoolhouse, but we're also advocating in ways that can help students and the conditions where they live so that the access to learning is optimal, right? When we're talking about housing insecurity, when we're talking about health insecurity, when we're talking about um, lack of access to, to different things that um, other students come into the school with, we're negatively impacting the uh, bandwidth of students' ability to learn. Doesn't mean it can't happen. Mm -hmm. Does not mean it can't happen. But as a commissioner of education, as an agency, it's our job to work with our partners, you know, blur the lines between agencies. So just yesterday I was having a conversation with the commissioner of housing and her team um, regarding uh, ways that housing patterns or what we could do to incentivize housing for teachers to live in the community where their students are learning. There's power there. So, yes, the role is to help the schoolhouse, but it's also to uh, influence growth and, and opportunity and improving conditions that affect learners' ability to learn. If you can, let me more into that conversation. I mean, what does that look like? How, how do you get it so that more teachers can live in the communities where they're teaching, so that the, the students are being taught by people who maybe look more like them? I mean, there's a whole lot of things you're trying to solve there, but, but what does that conversation sound like? Well, it's really about how do we leverage what we can control to incentivize and bring a positive attention to efforts to have a teacher living in the community. So when developers are thinking about building units, uh, consider how they can attract teachers. When we're talking about recruiting teachers from places that um, maybe serve historically black or brown um, uh, graduates, are we saying moving to Connecticut would give you an opportunity not only to teach in a wonderful environment, but also we can incentivize uh, some housing uh, so that it makes the transition easier. Because it's not only recruiting, it's retaining teachers. Mm -hmm. um, but also, just in general, for all teachers to live in the community where they teach, it gives them an understanding of where their kids are coming from. Um, and I think it, it, it's really about community development, John. Yeah. Think about it. You have a teacher in the community who has you know, a disposable income who's going to frequent the restaurant, who's going to shop at the local shop uh, in that area. So how do we... How do we work together to do to do that through creative programming, incentives, and working with districts to recruit teachers by saying, hey, you know, we also have some potential housing options for you that might be worthwhile for you to look at us as a district? The, I think the, the problem is the, the way that this all gets funded, though, is, is tied up in this, in this cycle, this, this issue, right? The, the suburban communities have a tax base that allow them to uh, both build great schools that can serve the people there. It also, in some ways, allows them to make sure that the only people who live in those communities are people who live on very large lots and probably look very much like them. That's a big cycle to break. And, and, and getting, getting a, a community that feels like 
we've worked really hard. We're doing really good in our schools. We're raising tax money in order to give the very best things to our community. It, it's it's sometimes hard to get them to say, yeah, but maybe we need to l- let some more diversity into our community so that people can can be educated in different ways too. I mean, that's a that's got to be a hard sell. It's a hard sell, but uh, that's a challenge before us. And I'm excited that as Commissioner of Education, I have the opportunity to convene folks that can have these conversations. You you mentioned earlier, sometimes I'm thinking about things that are not education-related, but they affect the factor. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is conversations that are starting to brew now uh, that I'm able to bring different people around the table to have these conversations. So I'm looking at state board uh, of education chairs and I'm looking uh, town leaders to come around the table. Let, let's talk about this. Let's let's see what we agree on and what movement we can make. You know, the, the, that expression, the smartest person in the room is the room itself, right? So let's bring people with diverse perspectives together to say this is an issue. How do we move forward? And what are some areas that uh, we can collectively push to say uh, all students should have opportunity? Everyone believes all students should have opportunities until it hits their backyard, right? Yeah. But how does how does that uh, manifest itself in policies that we can influence or uh, programs that we can support? Um, and how do we find incentives, uh, creative incentives that make it worthwhile, not just for the economic imperative right but but also because it's good for kids in connecticut yeah yeah i i I, it's the but the because it's connecticut right that economic imperative is always there i mean we're always thinking about their pocketbooks and and changing minds around pocketbooks changing minds around um property values that's i mean that that's really really hard stuff and like you say you can have great ideas in a room but when it comes right down to how i'm going to vote right right you'll make decisions you know go talk to a high schooler one of the things that I love about this job is I get to visit schools and I usually sit down with a group of students. They get it. They get that li- growing and learning in a diverse community will make them better people and will give them better opportunity in life, right? So engaging our youth in these conversations is critically important, especially because they're going to be the ones that are taking care of us uh, you know, a couple generations from now. So they're going to determine how this, how we move forward with this. So it's possible. It's possible. It's not easy work. I understand that, but it's it's what's worth doing. What what were the barriers to your education that you had to uh, overcome, or obstacles that you had to had to face? You know, for me, it was I had a loving, supportive family. Uh, I was the first generation going to college, so there were a lot of first ups, right? So uh, having access to experiences that some of my classmates might have had um, being exposed to uh, students from different backgrounds I, again I went to a technical high school that serviced students from surrounding towns as well so that uh, understanding of engaging with people that are different or have a different background and being able to navigate that space while uh, staying true who to, to who you are that was something that I experienced but like any any other kid growing up, you know, the challenges of school, having teachers you really like, having teachers that eh, not so much or, or courses that are challenging and, and just kind of persevering through those, much like any other kid. That's Miguel Cardona, Connecticut's Education Commissioner. You can read Jacqueline Rabe Thomas's story in the mirror today about how he worked to get students back in the classroom 
and how that effort might just fit in with the plans of the incoming Biden administration. You can go back and check out all of our podcasts at steadyhabits.org. While you're there, make a contribution to support The Mirror and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks to Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, Kyle Constable, Bruce Potterman, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson recorded our Steady Beats at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. If I don't talk to you before then, happy holidays. Thanks so much for joining us on Steady Habits all throughout this year.